Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. So for this episode, we talked to Jason Swank. Jason founded Solar Velocity, an agency, digital agency that he built up to $13 million in revenue, 100 employees, and ultimately sold it in 2012. My favorite part of this interview is Jason's commentary around the danger of committing to an earnout. Without further ado, Jason Swank. Jason, thanks for joining. Hey, thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about the company you sold, Solar Velocity. Yeah, so I started this company in 99, and it was a digital agency uh, where we designed websites, web applications, did marketing for small to medium to all the way up to the largest brands in the world, from Lotus Cars to Hitachi. And uh, it was a great experience. Neat. Love the name, by the way. Where'd you come up with the name Solar Velocity? You know, it was uh, in 99, it was actually hard to find a, a URL back then. And I remember always, um, every name we typed out was almost impossible. Every, it was all taken. And, and I love velocity. I love racing. I love speed. And so it was taken. And my uh, business partner at the time, he was um, kind of a, a nerdy guy and uh, had this Apollo spaceship poster in his basement that, that we were working out of. And so he said solar. And so we did it kind of like the Sesame Street and put solar velocity together. And we're like, that's it. <laughs> love it. Love it. So you were designing digital campaigns for some very large brands along with small companies. Yep. You had a partner. Tell me a little bit about that. Were they, was he or she an equity partner? Or what was the capital structure like when you? Yeah. So it was 50 50. I didn't know better. Um, you know, I worked for Arthur Anderson for about six months right out of school and jumped into doing this. And so I didn't know much about business and we're like, yeah, you know, the business is not that big right now. So let's go ahead and do 50, 50. And, um, so there was really, uh, <laughs> I should have, uh, should have owned a hundred percent of it though. And so what's the learning there? This was a friend of yours that you went into it with? and It was just an acquaintance that I, I played tennis with. Um, so the lesson learned is you either know the bad partner or you're the bad partner. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I'd always say the lesson learned is don't do – out of all the businesses I've helped in the – you know, past decade, almost all of them have failed with partners or had some major problems. So I would literally say, don't do partners, just find advisors or consultants that can help you out. Great. So did you stay with this partner all the way up until your exit in 2012 or did you guys have yes, a partner? Yes, we did. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Well, tell me what triggered wanting to sell the business because what was the event that led up to the decision to sell? You know, when we first got in, it was all about selling. I mean, we started in 99. That was right around the, you know, dot-com era, right? And all the people around us were selling their companies for, you know, pretty sick money. And we were like, really? You're, you're hardly making any revenue. And then as, you know, the dot-bomb went by and passed, um, you know, we stopped thinking about selling. And we just focused on growing and having fun and creating a nice lifestyle business. And in 2012... You know, and the whole way up through there, we got contacted by companies to buy us all along the way, but we always said no. And then, you know, just it was the right timing. It was the right offer. You know, we did it for over 12 years. We both wanted to do something different um, and we wanted some change. 
so many things I want to undercover there, but uh, when you say want to change, I mean, was there something you wanted to go to or did you know you just wanted to stop what you were doing? You know, I just, I did it for 12 years. I just, I didn't, I had no idea. I mean, uh, I was lost after I sold. I, I didn't know what I was going to do. I literally started building an iPhone app and created a couple companies doing that and hated it. And then, you know, I was just lucky enough that people pulled me back into kind of this world where I help agency owners build up, sell it, create a lifestyle business, whatever. But for two years, I was kind of struggling. I didn't know what I, I mean, not struggling financially, but just struggling mentally of like, what do I do? Do I go work for someone? Sure. <laughs> whatever, whatever. Cause I can't sit at home. I'll be bored. So before we get into sort of life after the sale, let's go back to the kind of triggering event. So you're going along with your partner, you're you know bu- building this business up. Give us a sense of, of where did you get to in terms of size, you know, number of employees, revenue, and it's some sort of proxy so we can get a, our head around your company a little bit. Yeah. So at the, in the event that when we sold, we had a little over a hundred employees and we were over 13. Uh, you were 13 million. million in revenue. Got it. So your $13 million business, you've been running it with your, your partner. It sounds like there was, you know, from time to time, some acrimony there, but you, you're building it up. And I mean, I guess I'm, I'm I'm pushing back a little bit on this idea that that it was just time. I mean, did you receive an inbound offer? Did you have a, a set to with your partner? Like, what was the event that made you think, yeah, now's now's the right time? You know, we always had visions of building it over the 10 million mark, right? And we got over that, and then it was just it was just you just feel like sometimes you've hit a wall or you've accomplished everything you wanted to accomplish in that business. And I just didn't want to take it to the next level, which would be, you know, the 50 million mark or the hundred million mark. It just, you know, keep adding more and more employees was just not what I wanted to do. I wanted to do something different, even though I didn't know what it was, um, for a while. Was there any sense, so you'd reached this $10 million milestone that you've been striving for. Was there a sense at all that, that going to the next level would require another recommitment of risk? Uh, was that part of it as well that you wanted to kind of quote unquote take some chips off the table as that t- terrible overused expression goes? Not really. I mean, yes, you you have to kind of reinvest. I mean, I always looked at you know the different levels is you kind of have to relearn everything as you're going. I always treated things in kind of like twelve different systems that you have to kind of master from, you know. And, and people go through this from you know starting out to get to the quarter million mark, and then the half million mark, and then the million mark, and then the three, and then five, and then probably ten, right? And so there's so many different levels, and you have to kind of figure that out. But it, you know, it was just. It was time. Like I get bored real easily and I was probably pretty surprised we stayed around for, you know, we didn't sell out before the 12 years. Got it. So walk us inside the negotiation. So tell us again, did you hire an M&A banker to take your business to market? Were you dealing with an unsolicited inbound offer? Kind of walk us through that piece if you could. Yeah. So it was a partner that we started working with or, or having chats with maybe six, about eight months, maybe prior. And they were a, a bigger agency than we were. And we were really kind of complimentary services. And so I originally started chatting with them about, you know, how could we kind of bolt two plus two equals eight, you know, not being acquired, but working together to get bigger clients and really streamlining it. And then they liked what, 
and they really started looking at what we were doing and said, you know, you know, would you guys ever consider being, you know, purchased? And I said, well, I mean, you know, make us an offer. And so they made us an offer and we went back and forth, you know, a couple of times, you know, we said no a couple of times, uh, but they really wanted us. And then, uh, you know, after they kind of got the original of kind of like, all right, these guys would take this, then uh, they crafted up a letter of intent. And then we started going through, you know, kind of the due diligence phase. And maybe take us through the original offer uh, and, and, and then looking at the final offer that you went to an LOI at, you know, what were the big changes? I mean, was it just deal price or was it terms or the earnout length? I mean, just give us a sense of what you were negotiating on the deal points. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was, you know, obviously it was on, you know, the cash up front. It was on, you know, earnout, different types um, that we had, you know, the stock options, you know, into the new entity, you know, how long we had to be there, who would be there. Um, and so we just went back and forth and said, you know, this is what we want. You know, if you can, if you can do it, great. If not, no problem. So we were, we were at a point where we could say no. Got it. Got it. So can you walk us through, uh, from the, from the, the final deal, the, the one that you agreed to, you know, a lot of our listeners are, are, are hearing that, you know, you're only getting a small chunk of your money up front and the rest is on, uh, you know, either timed payments or milestone based payments. So can you give us a sense what portion of your deal was up front and then what percentage was sort of in the future? Um, if you could. Yeah. So, um, I would tell anybody listening, don't ever uh, do any earnouts. Just be happy with the cash that you get up front because most of the time you'll never get the earnout. It's designed in most faucets, it's designed for you to fail, unfortunately, even though the acquirer does not want you to fail because that means they're going to make more money, but um, you lose total control. So, you know, about 50% was, uh, you know, cash up front and then the other 50 was on earnout. Got it. That's helpful for sure. And for those listening who don't know what an earnout is, basically, uh, you agree with the with the acquirer that you're going to hit a certain set of milestones in the future. It's typically based on profit, but it could be retention of clients, other things, and then um, your you know second tranche or third tranche of payment is only uh, realized if you meet those goals. Uh, so that's uh, that's super helpful. Talk to me about the dynamics that you had uh, with your partner because here you are, you're both 50% shareholders. Uh, were you aligned around what were important issues or was it also a challenge getting your partner sort of uh, on board with what you wanted to agree to or make us get us inside the head there? Yeah, no, you know, we always were able to come to what the company needed to do. So, you know, we, got along very, very well. Um, you know, he had a, a certain, when we first started out, his role was more around the technology and the development where mine was around the sales marketing and, and the operations. And so it stayed that way for a while. And then we just kind of, you know, the company started growing a little quicker than some. And, uh, but we were always able to come to, you know, conclusion, um, of what we needed to do. It was never kind of like, come to blows or, uh, you know, had to hire a mediator or third party to, to help us get through things. But, um, you know, but there's always challenges with partners. If I, um, as I'm creating new businesses, you know, now uh, I'll never 
have a 50-50 partner again, though. Would you rule out a minority partner or structuring it with two classes no, of shares? Or? No, I would be fine with a minority partner. If, um, but it would they would have clauses in there saying, you know, if um, they didn't fulfill their their roles or stuff like that, that it would call back and stuff like that. Got it. Because you you you, you never know. I mean, when we started the business. You know, we were just kids, you know, we were 23 or 22 or I guess he was a little older than me, but, um, you know, we didn't know what we were doing and how, how do you project out 10 years, 12 years or however long. Got it. Right. And so, you know, back to the negotiation for a second, you're, you're in the negotiation, you have an LOI in front of you, um, can you give us a sense, uh, we don't have to get into hard numbers, but can you give us a sense of the multiple of earnings that it would have been, uh, sort of the cash up front component that you were agreeing to um, for listeners to get a you know, rough sense of, of, of multiples uh, that you were looking at? Yeah, I mean, it, well, it's different in every industry and it's it's really whatever someone will, you know, why they want to buy you. Is it the location or whatever? I mean, you know, so... I mean, if you use a, a multiplier, I guess, I mean, of, you know, EBITDA, uh, which hopefully all you guys know, um, you know, it could be looking at it on how fast are you growing, um, or, you know, uh, you know, what's your profit margin. So it could be anywhere from four to, you know, 10 times or, or sometimes more. It just depends on how good of a negotiator you are as well. Yeah. And were you guys able to get from X to Y in that negotiation process? I mean, it sounds like you kind of pushed back paper a few times before you yeah. got to a... Yeah, we did well. We did well. That's great. Now, talk to me about the, the diligence process. So when you say do well, I'm going to interpret that to mean sort of the uh, the higher end of the four to 10 range without <laughs> necessarily going into detail. Yeah, you can. Your assumptions are right. Is that a fair fair assumption? Okay, well that's helpful. And, and again, I don't mean to pry, but it's helpful for folks to get a sense of uh, of what the ranges are. You know, a lot of people. It's funny, um, and I did this the same in my first business, where I looked at benchmarks in the Fortune 500 companies trading on the stock market and said, "Well, Omnicom is trading at whatever 19 times EBITDA." Therefore, I should change, you know, trade at nineteen times EBITDA, mm -hmm. and and of course, you know, comparing apples to apples was always was a very dangerous game. So, that, uh, did you ever run into that thing where you're benchmarking yourself against these kind of Fortune five hundred companies? No, no, not at all. I mean, I've never went through an acquisition before, and you know, I didn't. Yeah, you know, I just knew the number I wanted to walk away with. I was just like, okay. And what was the what was important to you about that number? What did that number mean to you? What did it signify to you in terms of like? What was the? I don't. Know, I don't need to know what the number was, but why was there a number, and, and what did it mean to you? You know, it was just that you know I didn't have to work for years to come, right? It was just, and it was kind of like a, a checklist off the bucket list. Great, built a great big company and sold it. And I also wanted to make sure that you know um, my employees could be in a really good spot where. The company is not going to completely die because I loved what we built, especially with all the employees. Because I mean, obviously, I wouldn't be there with all the the great employees that we had. I want to come back to employees, but first, let's talk a little bit about this achievement orientation you have because it sounds like you know, that was a bucket list. That was a number you wanted to hit, and it was important to you. And I know from reading your bio, you're also an Ironman triathlete. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Is this kind of goal orientation something that you? 
that's been a theme throughout your life? Do you, do you, would you agree with that? Oh man, everything. I mean, everything's goal oriented. I mean, how are you going to hit anything if you don't have a goal? You know, I just got off a client call and uh, they literally were like, we don't know where we want to go. And, and I was like, well, that's the biggest problem. I was like, you gotta, gotta have some idea, you know, you know, it's kind of like, um, you know, using Google maps, incredible software that can get you anywhere in the world. But if you don't put in an address, a destination, it's completely useless. So, yeah, I mean, everything I do has goals down to, you know, the next couple of years, down to 90 days, down to 30 days, down to the day. So you get this check and it's the number you, you kind of dreamt about and you were trying to achieve. Walk us through the next six to 12 months in your head. Um, I've heard, for example, that there can be a real downer, a real period of, of loss where achievement-oriented people you know, tick the box, they achieve what they were aspiring to and feel kind of empty. Yeah. I mean, well, you don't have uh, – you're not surrounded by the people that you've been surrounded with for a while. And, um, you know, it kind of goes back to kind of human nature, right? You know, we love the connection. We – um, aspire to contribute. So I wasn't contributing to anything anymore. Um, I didn't feel like I was growing because I wasn't doing anything. Um, you know, I was like, well, what do I do? You know, I mean, everybody else is working. Um, and so some of my friends reached out to me and was like, Hey, you know, we, we have this real big, uh, financial technology company and need someone to run the marketing technology. I was like, okay. And so I did that for a couple of years and I was like, and then I created an iPhone app. I, you know, I was just so lost. I didn't know what to do. Looking back on it, is there anything you'd do differently to kind of prepare yourself for those first couple of months after selling? Not at all. Because, I mean, I'm in the most incredible spot now. And you, you have to go through everything. You have to experience ups and downs. I mean, everybody kind of looks at people that, you know, have um, achieved what they think is success and they compare themselves against that. But what they don't see is all the, the ups and downs and the bruises and the hits and, and all of that. They always think the grass is greener on the other side. But I always tell them the grass is greener on the damn side that you water. Hmm. Interesting analogy. Never heard the, the last part of your statement that the grass is greener on the side that you water. It's great. Take us through, if you could, your mind from the standpoint of if you'd had to do the negotiation over again. So you'd, you'd built this great business. You went through a negotiation period. It sounds like, you know, again, you negotiated back and forth. You came to an agreement and, and you consummated a deal. If you had that to do over again, uh, hindsight being twenty twenty, what would you do differently? No earn out. <laughs> Everything at cash up front. Can you expand on that? Yeah. So I, I literally, earnouts are designed where you're not going to get them. Um, so I would just say. Everything that you're going to give us on the valuation of our agency, you're going to pay us 100% up front. And just have no stipulations, anything like that. And it's possible. A lot of, I mean, one of my good friends uh, did this with a, a company called Pardot. Got $100 million in cash up front. No or no. And didn't even have to work the next day. <laughs> he didn't even go with the company. Right? And so um, that's what I would do different. But everything else, I would do the exact same. So in your case, you had this earn out. Uh, did you did you go through a process of, of trying to achieve the goals or mm -hmm. yeah. maybe walk so, us through that? 
Yeah. So uh, my tour of duty was for two years. So our earnout was for two years and we went with um, the uh, acquirer or in the event that we got purchased again. And so we got purchased again in nine months. You right. the parent company that, that acquired you was acquired. Exactly. So, uh, so then our tour of duty was ended, and then obviously, then they go, okay, well, the earnout that you were about to, that you had two years to do, just got put into nine months, and you didn't achieve it. And isn't that something you can paper, like a lawyer can paper the the you know structure things so that if you, the acquiring company gets acquired, that doesn't happen to you? I mean, that seems like perhaps your lawyer may have. Yep. Yeah, so I, I had a couple people probably drop the ball, both my lawyer and um, the M&A guy that we hired. Um, you know, I, did, I thought, you know, earnouts were guaranteed, right? And I was like, I've always hit every single one of my goals. I was like, nothing's going to stop me from, from hitting this goal, right? And especially with the added power of this new entity and, you know, all my people fired up. But when you go into a new corporation, you know, your power is... You know, it's almost like you got uh, kryptonite strapped to your neck and you're the highest paid meeting coordinator you've ever met. And so you can't pull the strings that you could if you were operating by yourself. Right. So a lot of people are like, you know, um, you know, earnouts are going to be easy to hit. That's kind of what I thought. But when you have all the outside politics from this new entity and all that kind of stuff makes it really, really hard. And so that's the one thing I would structure. I would say. You know, I'll stay on with the company for two years, um, but there's not going to be any tied to performance in this deal. It's going to be if you want us, here's the cash, and that's it. And then you pay us a salary if you guys want. So I've had some experience in this agency world, interview some people in the agency world, and uh, you know, the very largest holding companies uh, you know, have a formula, right? And, and they all use earnouts to acquire agencies. Mm-hmm. So how would... Um, it sounds like you'd be prepared to to forego the sale of your company if you were going to dig your heels in that much and say, you know, there's nothing on the earnout. Then uh, don't you risk kind of walking away from a deal at that point? Sure. Yeah, but you gotta, but you gotta think too. We were making so much money, you know, without selling every year, right? So we were putting. I always tell people, treat your business. I mean, build it to sell it, but treat it like you'll never sell it. Because in the agency world, I think it's like, um, uh, what was it like a half of a percent of a percent that actually sell it for a profit, right? And so it's such a small number. Um, you know, most times, you know, especially if your audience is like from the five hundred thousand to the five million mark, most of the time a bigger agency is going to come in and they're going to try to pay them through the earnout or the, basically your profit for the next couple of years. Because the owners are at a point where they probably are starting to go under. It's going to be a fire sale. They're not liking it or whatever, and they just want to clear the slate. So that's kind of how a lot of those acquisitions go. But if you're building it where you can put away a couple million a year or a couple hundred thousand or whatever it is, whatever your number, why would you sell? In the next couple of years, you could be at the number that you wanted anyway. But in your case, you decided to sell. I decided to sell. Yeah, it was just I wanted to do something different. Hmm. Right. And you were still a young guy. Like, how old were you when you sold the agency? So, I just turned thirty-eight now, and so that was three years ago. So, thirty-five. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Because a yeah. lot of you know a lot of people equate selling their business with retirement, but that certainly wasn't your headspace. 
No. I mean, you know, I'm never going to stop working. I, you know, I just didn't know what I wanted to work on. And, um, you know, it was just, I just didn't want to deal with, you know, I think at the the, end of the day, I just didn't want to be in this selling websites and marketing strategies to people anymore. You know, I did that for so long, you know, it's just, you want to trade in that car and you want to get a faster car <laughs> or a, a, a car with better gas mileage. Speaking of faster cars or ones with better gas mileage, what was the one indulgence you allowed yourself to buy when that check cleared? Hmm. What did I buy? Um, I actually bought, <laughs> I guess I'm a redneck. I bought a really hyped up big tire uh, Wrangler Jeep. You are a redneck. <laughs> <laughs> the huge 21-inch rims, the big tread. Yeah, big tread so we could go rock crawling and all that kind of stuff, yeah. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. Tell us just before we break, what uh, what are you up to now? What uh, How do you spend your time today? Yeah, so um, I, I have the coolest job in the world. So, so now I coach and mentor um, other digital agency owners that are experiencing like – they're not being able to scale or they're just feeling stuck or they just want to figure out what it, what they need to do in order to get to a position that we were. And so I create online programs. I have a weekly podcast and I have a lot of different coaching groups that I help people get to the next level. And it's, um, it's one of the coolest things I've ever done. I mean, you know, making, making money while I'm riding bikes or making money while I'm racing cars or doing other stuff is just, it's pretty cool to me because for the longest time, once we sold something, we actually had to deliver it. (laughs) And so now it's the complete opposite. Tell us where to reach you if we need to reach you. Yeah. So you can go to my website, just jasonswank.com and swank is spelled S-W-E-N-K. And I'm not related to Hillary at all. (laughs) For the record. record. Jason, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.